Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Let's step back into the ring, back into time as we go into the Great Smoky Mountains. That's where we find the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, geez, man. Uh, glad to be on today. Glad to have the opportunity to, to uh, talk wrestling with some people around the world and uh, looking forward to it. we got a good, a good episode today. Wow, a lot of things going on, good and bad. <laughs> so I think uh, fans are going to find this to be a pretty interesting uh, studcast. Yeah, uh, I, now I, we got two territories that makes a big difference. I can tell you that. Well, wow. I was about to ask you: Have you ever owned cats? Have you ever tried to herd cats? No. Okay. Well, see, I don't. I don't see how you're doing this with two territories. And listen, I <laughs> <laughs> listen. I got to admit, Ron, when I saw the title for this, the 246 studcast, the Great Malenko creates madness. It got me a little curious. Because I knew that name instantly because of where I grew up, just miles from the panhandle of Florida, of course. I don't know how many wrestling fans around the world know anything about him, but wrestling fans all over Florida certainly knew him as the most despised heel ever in that state. So I got to ask, even though I think I know, which of the two southeastern territories was he going to be creating all of this madness in? And I know you're about to spill that on us. Yeah, you know, this Dave is going to be a very interesting studcast, I think, for fans out there. Uh, Malenko was a good friend of mine. Uh, I went there in 1970, second territory I ever worked as a young boy, uh, just out of college in 1970. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing, was really treated me nice. And, uh, you know, and we we had pretty much a uh, – if I had brought him into – the southeastern Gulf Coast, that would have been an instant shot in the arm for that territory, especially for those Panhandle fans, you know, pretty close to the area where you are, man, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they could see uh, the Tallahassee TV. Yeah. A lot of fans, in the, especially in that uh, eastern part of the Panhandle, could see the Tallahassee TV, and they got a big taste of uh, of what he was all about. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he, cause he was on every championship wrestling from Florida TV show, basically from Josh, I guess probably in the sixties all the way into, <laughs> into the eighties. So, uh, so, you know, but, uh, Southeastern Gulf coast, it, it's, it wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have worked for me to bring him there. Uh, because, uh, he, he made good money. 
he was a big star. He might have been the biggest uh, heel star in the history of Florida wrestling. And, uh, you know, he was accustomed to making money. So uh, so that's kind of an example of uh, why the week of this Studcast focus, April 10th through uh, Saturday, April 15th of 1978, we're talking about in this show, uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast uh, was running three cities mm-hmm. for the first time ever. And uh, two of those cities uh, were the first time ever that they'd had shows at all. And it wasn't time there yet, uh, you know, uh, for Malenko's kind of talent to be brought in there. Well, couldn't afford to pay him, and he wouldn't have made money, and he probably wouldn't have stayed. Yeah, Boris Malenko, man, whose real name was Larry Simon. He'd been waiting for more than a year to get his shot in Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, And he knew he was going to be another top heel when he came in. And he was going to make as much or maybe even more money than what he'd been making in Florida. And he knew more importantly that he was only going to, he was going to travel a thousand miles less a week. <laughs> so, you know, he had heard from his friend, Joe LaDuke. They were pretty close. And others that were working in the territory that he knew about the big money guys were making and the short trips. It's kind of a wrestler's dream, to be, a, to be honest with you. <laughs> no doubt. All right. So, but knowing you, Stud... I bet you had some great ideas for introducing him in Tennessee. But speaking of great ideas, before we get to Southeastern today, I hear you've recorded your second Superstars of the Past show, almost ready to add it to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. So you've got that ready to go. With all this happening in your life, how are you finding the time to keep adding new content to your new streaming channel? Well, you know, it's a... I kind of got the bug, man, for writing with Brutus, you know, and I got involved in it and I really enjoyed it. And uh, Brutus, uh, which obviously is my lion story and uh, and it's fiction, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, it's success kind of given it's given me the urge, man, to do another book. And uh, suddenly here I am, man. I got a YouTube channel and a streaming channel as well. And both of them are based around my wrestling life, and my wrestling companies from the past. Right. And, so my family's been in the professional wrestling business for a hundred years. And you know, that maybe makes me knowledgeable enough to write a book about <laughs> wrestling. I don't know. You think so, Ron? <laughs> you okay. So you're coming from the oldest and largest family in the history of this sport, being a wrestler, a booker, a owner of four successful wrestling companies and a very successful wrestling podcaster. I would call that, uh, Okay, I would call that qualified. So tell us about the second Superstars of the Past show, soon to be on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. Who you got? What's that going to be like? Well, you know, my first wrestling, uh, you know, Superstar of the Past was Abraham Lincoln, oddly enough. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, uh, but that's a great place to start, I guess. One of the most famous people in the history of the world. Yeah, I was and not going to. I was not going to ask if you knew him because I knew better than that. So, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't uh, yeah. go back that far, Okay, man. right. You know, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm getting pretty close. <laughs> so, you know, and, and Lincoln, I really liked uh, I liked his story because he had 300 wins and he only had one loss ever wow. as a wrestler. Wow. You know? So my second superstar is, you know, uh, is one of the, the many pioneers of the professional wrestling between 1850 and 1900, which there are a bunch of them, man. I've done uh, the research has just been fascinating for me. Mm-hmm. And the guy I picked for number two is a guy named Martin. They called him Farmer Burns. And, and I chose him for several reasons other than because this guy had 6,000 wins what? and only seven losses. Good God. 
So the, he he was a wrestler, man, that that actually did it. Wow, quite a bit. I guess I probably had about five thousand matches. So I <laughs> he he was there at it for many many years. So Farmer Burns was called that obviously because crazy enough he wore overalls to wrestle mm. in. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, so and he was the one wrestler, in my opinion. Uh, that most influenced professional wrestling after 1900 into the next century, uh, you know, into the 20th century, because of the number of students of the sport he trained after retirement. He trained hundreds of guys, great wrestlers. And one of them was the most well-known professional wrestler of the first decade of the 1900s. That guy was Frank Gotch. Hmm. Uh, so he's likely to be my next superstars of the past. But uh, what I really swayed my opinion more about uh, Farmer Burns than anything else was something my grandfather, Roy Welch, told me as a boy. He told me the story of Farmer Burns, who trained a wrestler named Dutch Mantell, <laughs> who happened to train my granddad, Roy. So uh, that kind of set my family on the path to becoming the oldest and largest family in this sport. Uh, wow. So, uh, Farmer Burns has, has a tie-in basically to my family. Wow. Okay. So anybody that's listened to Studcast recognizes, of course, that Dutch that name, Dutch Mantel, of course. He was mentioned many times in your first five Studcast, which were all about your grandfather. And we're talking 240-plus weeks ago. So you've been doing this a while. So I know that you're now thinking about also writing another book. Are Farmer Burns and Dutch Mantell going to be a part of your real history of professional wrestling book? <laughs> well, definitely. I think they are. Hey, yes, man. Uh, along with hundreds of the greatest of all time stars and, and their stories, man. I want to I want to alert people to all the great wrestlers there were. And all of them have a story. They, they, every one of them has a different story and, and they're amazing. So, uh, and when I finish the first chapter of this book, I'm going to be reading it right there, right on the streaming channel. I'm going to read it one chapter at a time. Every time I finish a chapter, I'm going to read it on the, on the actual site. Uh, and, uh, until the book is complete. <laughs> so, you know, fans will be able to, without buying that book, they'll be able to hear the <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> All right. I could go on asking questions about this subject for at least two more studcasts, but now, Back to the start of this studcast, I am intrigued by the great Malenko becoming a part of Southeastern Knoxville and wondering how you're going to introduce him to, to the fans there in that part of Tennessee, especially. Are we, uh, is that where we're riding this week? What's up? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's part of the ride, my man. Yeah, obviously. And uh, Southeastern Knoxville fans, they're going to get their first taste of a Russian accent. I don't know that they've ever had a big time Russian in that eastern part of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to get that accent from one of the best heels in wrestling history, man. And uh, and he's coming there for vengeance against the current top heel that's soon going to become one of the all time favorite baby faces in that part of the country. So uh, it all begins with another rare Monday night Coliseum card. Uh, we don't have many Monday night shows, uh, but we've got a Monday night card that we're talking about in southeastern Knoxville, the early part of the show here. And uh, the interesting, we'll talk about the interesting uh, TV. It was two days before that event. That we'll talk about the wild night in the Coliseum when this card did actually take place and, uh, and the attendance there. And then we're going to head, obviously, down there toward the Gulf of Mexico and southeastern Gulf Coast. <laughs> and uh, and we're in for a big surprise there, Dave, and it ain't a good one, man. Uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, 
the second major city we started in the territory in its first event and uh and uh, it's it, it was our first week there in the territory that we ran more than that one town of Dothan. Uh, we're actually going to run three in that week. And uh, we're going to look at the cards for two of those three cities that we're running. We're going to discuss the TV, promoted those cards, or talk about the results of the matches and the attendance down there on the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then if we got time permitting, man, we're going to have another uh, learning tree question. And this one I, I hear is about Ernie Ladd's being in southeastern Gulf Coast from last week's studcast. Some question about Ernie Ladd. Yeah. All right. So, I, I, yeah, I hope we make it to that point on the show. I, I'm going to push you on it. All right. So it sounds like a lot happening in both territories at the same time, too. You got a Russian, a Russian invasion in the north, some kind of disaster in the south. So why don't we start with the card in the Knoxville Coliseum? Monday night, April 10th of 78. That's a good place to start, my man. Okay, so Rip Smith, who is a great young talent man, has got his opening match with Doug Gilbert, who is the pro. Uh, uh, He is a different pro. We got a pro in the Southern Territory and a pro in the Northern Territory, both of them wearing masks. Uh, Dick Steinborn took on the legendary Ron Wright in the second match. Tony Charles wrestled the newcomer, the great Malenko who was in his first Coliseum event. Tennessee stood, uh, met Don Carson. The Southeastern tag belts were on the line again. The champions, Jimmy Golden and Ricky Gibson, were defending against Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, presented by Ron Wright. And it was the second straight title events for the champions against the same team. Last week, they had a 30-minute time limit draw, and this one is a no-time limit match. The next match on that card was a Southeastern Championship match with the champion Robert Fuller defending against a Mongolian stomper managed by Gorgeous George Jr. It was the stomper's first title rematch, chance to get his championship back after he had lost it three weeks earlier to Rob. And uh, this one was a no-DQ match. And the main event, man, was a cage match. Hmm. It was no time limit, no DQ, and the loser left Southeastern. A uh, match between Ronnie Garvin and Joe Duke. Everything mm. was at stake in this one, man. That's a pretty good card right there with seven matches, no less. So, sir, what happened on the TV show? And you're talking two days before this card in Knoxville. Well, the show opened with Les running down the card for the day, uh, as usual. And when the cameras backed away from the close-up on him, there was Joe Duke sitting next to Les. And uh, behind him was that huge still shot, uh, and it was a a shot of the pandemonium at the end of the Lumberjack match from uh, the Sunday before, in which Joe LaDuke was against Ronnie Garvin in the Coliseum. And it showed wrestlers fighting on all four sides of the ring. There was fights everywhere on the floor. And uh, then the two guys that were supposed to be getting thrown out on the floor, possibly, they were the guys who was in the ring. And they were all bloody at this point in this particular shot. So Les, as usual, asked Joe to tell about what was happening in the shot. Uh, But before Joe even had the opportunity to say anything, an unfamiliar face appeared on the screen. People had never seen this guy. And uh, it was Boris Malenko. Uh, who was, one of, as I said, uh, maybe earlier already, one of the best heels in the world. And uh, suddenly there he was in the screen with uh, Joe LaDuke and the Les Thatcher. And both, obviously, LaDuke and Thatcher recognized him, but they didn't know he was there for TV. And uh, and uh, doubt hardly any of the Southeastern fans recognized who this guy was, but they're going to know him pretty soon, that's for sure. So LaDuke got up. 
and slowly backed away because he'd had matches against Malenko. He knew who he was, and he knew he was kind of a dangerous dude. You never knew what to expect. So uh, it kind of gave the Russian enough room to push closer in there to less, you know, and he, he wanted to say something. And, uh, and he threw his long, heavy chain that well, he was famous for in Russian chain matches. That was his gig, man. And he threw that chain on the desk in front of Les. And boy, it landed with a big thud, man. I mean, that, that thing weighed, it probably weighed 100 pounds. Uh, Les didn't have, hadn't even had a chance to speak, and Malenko started uh, right before him. And he, and he has this Russian, heavy Russian accent. And he, he started asking Les, uh, uh, where's Ronnie Garvin? Where's Ronnie Garvin at? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then saying, you know, and then basically, you know, Les didn't have any opportunity. He just kept talking and he said, uh, you know, it's time for him to come out of hiding and deal with his cowardice, you know, in his Russian accent. I, and I can't do this guy's accent. I'd love to be <laughs> able to. Wow. He, he's it's 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 heavy. So Les was, uh, you know. Always upset, man, with surprises, and this one didn't make him. Uh, it didn't make <laughs> him happy, that's for sure. So uh, Les basically got on him, and he told Malenko that he wasn't scheduled to be here until Monday night's event, and uh, and then he sure wasn't scheduled to be on TV at all, you know. And uh, and he says, uh, you know, basically to him, you know, you, this ain't no way to introduce yourself to southeastern fans. You can't just come out here and take over. And he, and he basically asked him fairly nice. He said, you know, and if you'd kindly remove your chain from the set and, and leave now, he says, I'll try to give you a few minutes later in the show during the personality profile. Then you can explain why you're out here and doing this, right? So Malenko grabbed his chain, but he leaned over and left his face before he left. And he told him uh, he was here to settle a vendetta with Ronnie Garvin and that it was long overdue. And he was going to leave now, but by gosh, he demanded some time on the TV program to vent his grievances with Ronnie Garvin. And then uh, he turned and uh, drug his chain out of there, and uh, and and uh, he was gone before Les could even respond. Wow. What an, an <laughs> that's an unusual introduction of a new wrestler, to say the least. I mean, does this have anything to do with the, uh, surely it does, the audio you and I talked about on the phone last night, you sent me earlier that m we might be inserting it in the stud cast. Yes, sir. That's it. Okay. And, uh, right. and in fact, fans are going to hear in that audio that uh, we're going to be inserting into this show mm -hmm. exactly what the great Malenko sounded like in yeah. 1978. Yeah. And, it, and it's going to be played uh, later on when we get to the personality profile in, the, in this this TV show that we're talking about now. So back to where we were before Malenko's interruption of the TV show. Mm -hmm. So Joe LaDuke came back to the set, and he and Les watched the video from the still shot on the background behind them. And it showed the pandemonium at ringside to the point that, uh, you know, and once the video started, it, it showed everything. And, uh, you know, and it showed the it reached a point to where the referee had no control anywhere inside the ring and nor outside the ring. And he just started having them ring the bell. He just had, called the match and no contest. Uh, and it kind of set the stage, obviously, for a cage match. So where are you going to go if a lumberjack match can't control things? You got to put the steel around them and uh, leave them in that cage. And uh, that was going to. And then, uh, you know, they, they were going to end this one. Uh, Joe really talked about it a little bit with Les. He says, you know, and uh, uh, I know this is a bad, it's no DQ, it's no time limit. Uh, and I know that uh, the loser 
is probably gone forever from Southeastern. <laughs> so then Joe went to the ring for the first match. And um, as usual, he bear hugged two of his victims, man, that he, <laughs> he had, uh, put them both out with the bear hug. And then he went back to the set and he took the entire first interview talking about the upcoming cage, the loser leave, uh, all the all the possibilities of that match. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Ricky Gibson in the second match, uh, they brought those tag team belts to the ring, man, and wow, they got a great ovation. Them boys were over. They got another great win, too, and they both drop kick guys off the top rope again, and, uh, and wow, the studio was just really into it. So then they went to the set, and uh, Ron Wright, had his Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson team in Studio B ready for the second interview. And, uh, wow, these tag matches these kids were having were absolutely phenomenal, man. And uh, so, you know, it was going to be another classic match, that tag match on the following Monday night. Wow. Okay. So I guess it was time for the personality profile, Ron. Is this the spot where you say you want to play the actual recorded audio from 78 of the great Malenko that you sent? Uh, well, it is, but but first, kind of, Dave, I want to kind of set the set the tone uh, and uh, for this short audio clip, right? Uh, before we play it, you know, so you know, this was the beginning of a major change in the direction of southeastern Knoxville. It's it's a, it's going to take place on this show, as a matter of fact, uh, and this change is going to take Knoxville wrestling to the next level. So I want fans to know a little bit about what was said on the profile before this one minute of audio that, uh, that I have sent you. Mm -hmm. So for those who have never heard the great Malenko make an interview, I think you're going to find this very interesting. So the profile began with him sitting with Les and he had his Russian chain in his lap and uh, Malenko uh, told, uh, told very little about why he was coming in or, or why he wanted to get even with Garvin. Only something about it was personal, and it happened between them and Florida years earlier. And he said when he started discussing uh, entering Southeastern Wrestling months ago, months ago, he had demanded that the company, and Don Curtis in particular, uh, allow his first match against Garvin to be a Russian chain match, which was, as he said, my specialty. <laughs> and, uh, and he said that uh, they complied with his request. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was months earlier, and they said, here's your date. Uh, come on in. And then he said, but uh, prior to my arrival, just, uh, just a week or so ago, he says, they pulled their their permission for me to have the Russian chain match. <laughs> they changed their minds on me, right? You know, mm -hmm. they got me here, and now they've changed their minds on giving me the match I want. And uh, he said his demand, you know, had been refused. And uh, so uh, – Dave, let's let's play that audio right here, and I think he's going to explain in this short one minute uh, kind of uh, his feelings about this and uh, and uh, how upset he is. All right, here it is. But pay close attention. I've hired a battery of attorneys to serve the Southeastern Wrestling Organization and Don Curtis, the president, with a court injunction. If they don't do it the right way, they'll do it my way. Because I'll tell you something, money talks, and it's going to talk with the attorneys that I have hired, and this chain, Matt, next week, I will be back on this wrestling TV program, and I will bring you people the best news that you've ever had, and I'm going for one person and one person only, and that person is Ronnie Garvin, 
and I will offer you because I know this court injunction will go toward my favor and I'm positive of it that I will be back with this chain and I will ask you to sign the contract. Okay, wow. So I could barely remember how the dude even sounded. I, I saw the look from the, the YouTube video on Southeastern Rewind, but the voice still gives me chill bumps. This was great stuff for Southeastern Knoxville adding another quality heel to the crew at a time. I don't know that you had to have another heel, but you sure got a good one with this one. So it's no wonder things just kept rocking there during this time period. Yeah, I mean, we were doing good. I mean, this show was going to continue, man, to, to rock it as well. I'll tell you, this was a great show. So the Mongolian Stomper was the next person on the TV, and uh, he was determined to get his southeastern belt back after his loss three weeks earlier to my brother. Uh, with the with Rob had the belt, and uh, wow, Stomper was always intense. But Rob told me because I wasn't there that day, I'm in Alabama to do TV that day, that he thought the mere addition, man, of another top heel like Malenko to the crew, kind of set Stomper on fire. And so, you know, competition was well among heels was great for your business, man. It was great for a territory to have heels trying to get over better than the other heels. So Stomper destroyed, man, his young opponent, Rob said, and he went to the set with Gigi. And uh, Gigi was still bragging to the studio as he followed uh, the old monster of uh, Stomper to the set. And Robert did his interview from Studio B. He had the belt over his shoulder, he told me, and the belt, uh, you know, Stomper wanted back badly, man. Stomper was really lost without a belt to put around his waist. And Gigi was as proud of the, as a peacock of his man's destruction in that TV match he just left, and he predicted it was going to happen again two days later to Rob. So the last match had a little twist in it, man, to the show. And from the very beginning, Ronnie Garvin, he had asked for two opponents in, his, in this match uh, because Joe LaDuke had been wrestling two guys in every match since he came to Southeastern, Ronnie Garvin, had asked to have two opponents in his TV match. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that then that slow turn of Garvin that we were doing from uh, heel to babyface, it was now about 50-50 with the crowd. Half the people were cheering him and half of them were booing him. And the personality and profile in this particular show uh, with an obvious heel now taking shots at him helped kind of swing that percentage even higher toward being a babyface. So Garvin was just as fired up as the Stomper was in his match. He pummeled the two opponents he had. He jumped off the top rope in both of them's throat, and then he pulled one on top of the other and covered them both to get the win. So studio audience, at this point, they're all in, man. They, they've seen this new new Russian guy, and he's there, and he's, he's mad at Garvin, and they're, you know – so they, they see Garvin really take these two boys to task, man, and really get, takes care of them big time. So, man, they're, they're really showing their respect. They're all on their feet, man. They're, they're all in <laughs> Garvin at this point, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, but the show wasn't over yet. And, uh, the Gar, you know, the great Malenko man shot in the ring behind Garvin. Garvin had his back turned to him. Garvin, was, the referee's raising his hand, and he never saw him coming. And the Russian man nailed him, man, with his chain in the back of the head first. Garvin went down face first, and crowd went totally silent. They was like, wow, what is good? This crazy. So Malenko turned Garvin over on his back, and he, he took his time. 
Rob says he kind of he was no no big rush. He took his time because he'd already hit him in the back of the head, <laughs> and he was half out. And he said he he put the lengths of the chain over his fist, and he said he dropped on his knees. And when he did, he drove the chain into Garvin's forehead. And Rob told me he said I was sitting up there in the control room upstairs, and he said I could see the blood squirt straight up in the air. <laughs> God. He said, wow, it was unbelievable. And uh, and he said, <laughs> Rob said, he said, Bill Kincaid, who was the director of the show? Uh-oh. Uh, he, and he always <laughs> asked when I brought in a new hero, he had the same question. And he, he said, Bill Kincaid, ask him immediately the same question he always asked me <laughs> when uh, Dangerous Hill made his debut. He asked Rob. He said, where did Ron find this one? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tony Charles, man, uh, the opponent for the great Malenko on the next Monday night's card. His first night in, he's wrestling Tony Charles. Tony Charles is standing there watching this match, and, boy, he flew in the ring to aid Garvin. And Malenko done, had done his damage. He wasn't going to fight with Charles. He'd, he'd, he'd done what he came for. Mm. And he drug his chain out of there, and he left the ring. And on his way past Les, the set, though, he, you could be heard screaming at Les. Rob said you could hear him say, uh, he bet that Southeastern and might, that Garvin now might be ready for a chain match. <laughs> this might make it, <laughs> make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Les, Les was speechless, but the studio wasn't. They cheered Tony and Garvin. And Garvin, uh, Rob went down and brought a towel to him. And, uh, you know, he had an interview to do and he couldn't go out there with all that blood on him. So he was wiping his face and he was trying to get himself together. And, uh, so him and Charles went to the in set with Les for the last interview. And, uh, and, uh, when the cameras went into studio B, there stood a strange couple, uh, Jola Duke standing with the great Malenko. And uh, Les started off with him because he wanted to give Garvin an opportunity to get his wits together, man, get the blood off of him a little bit and get ready to, to do his thing. So the fans had at this point, as soon as they saw him standing there with the Russian, <laughs> they they went a total heel on him. They were <laughs> like, wow, this is Joe LaDuca. I can't believe what you've done. And uh, so Joe LaDuke, uh, big smile on his face. He welcomed his friend to Florida and he thanked him for coming. He said, you're here at the perfect time. He said, I got this cage match and the loser's going to leave Southeastern. And he said, uh, he thanked Malenko. He said, I, you know, thank you for taking your chain in there and rattling old Garvin's brain. <laughs> he said, and uh, now it's about time for, for me to finish by crushing his body Monday night. Wow. And, uh, and he ended by telling fans that he wanted to see Ronnie Garvin again uh, if they ever wanted to see him. Do you like Ronnie Garvin? He said, short Monday night because that's his last match ever in Southeastern. So they switched over to the other studio, back to the set, and Ronnie was still wiping blood off his forehead and out of his eyes. And he told Les he didn't care. If they put both LaDuke and Malenko in the cage with him Monday night, <laughs> you know, stick them both in there, man. Mm. That way I'll know where they are, you know. Yeah. And he said, I'm coming prepared for anything and anybody. And he, he said he was going to send Joe LaDuke out of Southeastern back to Canada. And then he was going to let the great Malenko know he had come to the wrong place, that this wasn't Russia. This wasn't Florida wrestling. This was Southeastern wrestling. And here he was the new king 
And before he was done with Malenko, he said, I'm going to stick that Russian chain where the sun don't shine. <laughs> All right. That's a pretty wild TV and a great way to get a heel over in one day, Ron. So what happened in the Knoxville Coliseum Monday night, April 10th of 78? Well, Rip Smith beat Doug Gilbert, the pro. Uh, Ron Reich uh, kind of stole a win from Dick Steinborn. Uh, the great Malenko uh, gave a rare loss to Tony Charles. And, uh, and, and in the process, he also opened him up for the first time Tony Charles bled in Southeastern. Uh, so Malenko is really, really make, creating. He's, he's, he's creating a stir, man. Uh, the Tennessee stood uh, beat Don Carson. Uh, Gibson and Golden retained their belts. They got a DQ win over Condry and Hickerson. Uh, walked away with the Southeastern tag belts again. Uh, Robert Fuller kept his Southeastern belt. Uh, Gigi got involved, and the Tennessee stud got involved also. Uh, and it cost Stomper the chance to get his title back. Uh, but next week's main event, man, in Knoxville is going to have a much more important risk involved in it than than just the championship. It's going to be a pretty heavy-duty one next week as the main event. The cage match this night was crazy. Uh, Joe LaDuke was booed for the first time since he came to Southeastern Wrestling, uh, and he really didn't mind. And in fact, in this match, Dave, he got in the ring and he intentionally, every time he got Garvin on his back, he kept going over and unloosening a turnbuckle on the top rope. And then when Garvin would get up, he'd go put him down again and he would go back. And at a certain point, he loosened it enough that he could get the top rope off the ring. And when he did that, he was going to use that turnbuckle on Ronnie Garvin. Now, those turnbuckles were about... Uh, 12, 14 inches long. They probably weighed about uh, 15, 10, 15 pounds each. Uh, very, very heavy steel. Wow. And uh, when he got ready to hit Garvin with it, Garvin blocked him. He took that away from him and he beat him. I saw somebody uh, sent me something on social media, a fan that said he was there that night, saw this match. And he said he beat Ronnie Garvin, beat Joe Duke with that turnbuckle like it was a baseball bat. Uh, is one of the bloodiest matches in the history of Southeastern wrestling, and uh, he left Joe LaDuke laying. Wow. Uh, Joe LaDuke was carried to the dressing room on a stretcher, in fact, that night, and it was the last match he ever had in Southeastern Knoxville. No kidding. What a night. All right, so you had to have a pretty big crowd for Joe LaDuke's last night. Well, you know, it, it – it, it wasn't on a Sunday afternoon. It, it was a Monday night, bear in mind. But I think if it had been a Sunday afternoon, it would have been a complete sellout. Wow. Uh, and even with it being a Sunday night, it was 5,600. So wow. well into the fives, you know. Yeah. So uh, business was great. Yeah. All right. Hey, I tell you what, it's a good place for a break. And while you're taking the break, you got time to check out ClassicContinentalWrestling.com www.classiccontinentalwrestling.com it's streaming everything that you see on youtube's southeastern rewind and a whole lot more and you can check it all out right now classiccontinentalwrestling.com
Com. All right, we'll be back. This studcast will continue in a moment right here. The best old school deal in wrestling is ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, the Tennessee Studs streaming channel. Only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year, with a limited time only free one-week trial. Every 1988 USA TV show ever done, 24 1985 Continental TV shows now, hundreds more to come, plus hundreds of 1980 to 1985 classic Southeastern TV shows, documentaries, super Superstars of the Past series, three-hour Stars of the Sports series, current stud cast, every stud story ever done, and unique content from the stud found nowhere else. Subscribe at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com and get it all. $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year with a free one-week trial. Hurry, this offer ends soon. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. Another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. All right, stud, let's get right back into it. Where are we riding next on this stud cast? Well, we're headed south, my man. Uh, lots of good things for the future happening, obviously, in Knoxville during this week. But it was not a great day uh, or a great time for southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, so I was in Knoxville that night. Uh, it was a Monday night and uh, had pretty much a full coliseum just about. And uh, there was another match going on in southeastern uh, Gulf Coast down in Montgomery, Alabama. It was the first ever Southeastern Gulf Coast event. It was in the beautiful downtown Montgomery Civic Center, and it was a disaster. So for the first time ever, I got a long distance call for me uh, in the Coliseum office. Got, somebody came from down up top uh, upstairs and said, Ron, you got a call. Can you come upstairs? So, And when I got up there, I was surprised to hear the voice of Bob Armstrong. He was on the phone, Montgomery Civic Center office, and he told me they were only about 10 minutes away from start time, but he said, Ron, we got less than 100 people in the building. And he asked me what they should do. And first I was shocked. I mean, I hadn't expected things to be that bad. And I knew it was an opening night, but uh, you know, Montgomery's a much bigger city than Dothan. And, uh, you know, did, I couldn't figure out what the deal was, but uh, they had seen the number of TV, same, same number of TV shows as, as Dothan had seen uh, because the stations uh, were there when I bought that territory. But obviously that city, Montgomery, wasn't in near as good a shape as the much smaller Dothan was. Mm-hmm. So Bob asked me, what should we do? Right? Hmm. And I said, uh, do we run this show or not? And obviously a very difficult decision to make right away instantly. It's an instant decision here just about because I got to go in the ring. So I told Bob to have the ticket sellers return the money to the fans and announce that we wouldn't return there for at least a month. And then instead, we, instead of the schedule for Monday night, the following Monday night, mm-hmm. we backed it off for a month. Now, Roy Lee Welch was down there. He would already moved into Pensacola and he was handling box offices. And uh, so I got him on the phone and I told him to write the check, write the wrestlers checks for and for the night and tell them that we're going to be running in Dothan and we we're going to be running on Saturday night in New Brockton. So uh, we'd see him for the weekend. So I didn't, uh, you know, it, it's kind of crazy, man. Wow. Okay. So I, I really didn't expect to hear that. It had to kind of take the wind out of your sails. How, I mean, so what, what were you thinking? Wow. Well, 
I got a little sick almost, man. You know, I, I knew that the Gulf Coast Territory was in bad shape when I bought it, but I didn't know it was in that bad of shape. It was the first time since I became an owner of a wrestling company that I'd had to give fans their money back because the crowd was too small to run an event. And that happened in a lot of places. And gosh, nowadays they run events commonly that don't have enough people to run it, in my opinion. Right. But uh, back in those days, uh, it was pretty unusual. So I instantly pretty much got started to get a little depressed in spite of the fact that there I was when I walked out of that office, I looked and there's about 6,000 people in the building I'm in. So, <laughs> no, right. I couldn't right. get too sad. Right. So yeah. I kind of had to jerk myself up, man, get my head together. And uh, I went back to the dressing room and with a smile on my face. I didn't tell anybody what was going on down there and, uh, and it was hard to do, but I was going to need to do it some more in the future down there. I mean, uh, it, it was going to be tough. So Dothan, Alabama was the exception to the rule in that territory before I bought it. You know, it had always been one of the better towns. Uh, now it was by far the best that was still there. Uh, you know, and uh, we were going to, you know, live off that town basically for the next month because obviously we're not going to be back into Montgomery for a month. And we had several other cities that were about to open, though. We had Panama City. We had Pensacola. Mm -hmm. And we had yet to wrestle in the biggest market in Mobile. Uh, so uh, I realized that Knoxville, even though I thought it was bad when I bought it and took it over, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. And uh, over the next month when I was in southeastern Gulf Coast and things were bad, I began to repeat that old saying when things got that day, I, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So uh, so let's get going and uh, see what the card was for Dothan, Alabama on Friday, April 14, 78. So the opening match that night was Mike Stallings versus an old veteran heel man in the Gulf Coast, Eddie Sullivan. Been there for a long time. Good heel. David Schultz uh, was taking on Robert Gibson, uh, second match. Next match was one of the highlights of the last week's card where Eddie Mansfield surprised the wrestling pro. He bloodied him up, almost unmasking. And they were back on the card again. And uh, this time, though, they weren't the first match, man. They had worked their way two matches up. <laughs> They're moving up the card. Uh, Big Bill Dromo was back again, and he was going to face the assassins managed by Rip Tyler for a second time. Uh, this time, he had a totally different partner than the man he had wrestled with uh, last week. Uh, the guy that had beat Ernie Ladd was his partner, and Charlie Cook was teaming up with Bill Dromo to go after the assassins. And the main event was another return match between myself and Bob Armstrong. And again, the winner of the match is going to get the 10000 prize for winning the two-week battle royal, which is now two weeks earlier. You know, it hasn't been anybody win it, didn't win that money yet. So this time, the match was going to be a Canadian lumberjack match. You're going to have wrestlers surrounding the ring to throw the participants back in uh, when they left the ring for whatever purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, this one was a no time limit, no DQ, and there had to be a winner. Somebody was going to get the ten grand. Uh, the following Friday night. Hey, I'll tell you what, that's a pretty good card right there. That's a great card. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that Eddie Mansfield versus the wrestling pro match, as well as the main event. Tell us about, and I think the TV for this is going to be April 8th of 78, always six, day before, six days before the card in Dothan, the, the one you just described. Correct. 
That's that's the date, and I think that's the right date. April eighth would have been. Uh, so you, know, I have to admit, man, I learned a quick lesson already in southeastern Gulf Coast. You know, I had religiously planned when I came there, uh, and in fact, I, I recruited guys, talent, to bring a whole new crew starting down there. Uh, but once I watched that Eddie Mansfield and wrestling pro match the week before, I realized that there was great value in some of those former stars of the Gulf Coast down there, like the wrestling pro. So, uh, you know, that being said, uh, I opened the TV the next day with the wrestling pro, watching the video of a very good match of his that he had with Mansfield. And uh, he had sat there and he, he, he it was a little difficult for him. He, he had to watch the, the youngster hit him with a gimmick and bust him open and then almost pull his mask off at the end. And, uh, and he had to give Eddie Mansfield some credit. And then, then, then he said to, to Charlie Platt, he said, you know, the, the kid, the kid uh, looked real good against me. He goes, I have to admit it. And he goes, you know, and, and, and I want to get have a return match because I'm going to give this kid a lesson. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and the kid then uh, had the first live match. Eddie Mansfield went right in the ring after he left the set with uh, Charlie Platt. And, uh, and he, he had himself a good win, and uh, it gained a lot of confidence in that match. And it showed in his TV match. And, uh, and he was wrestling a much bigger guy on TV, and it didn't make any difference. I mean, he took it to him, boy, and he left him, left him laying. So then uh, Eddie Mansfield watched the, the earlier interview. Uh, in Dothan, we did interviews. Uh, instead of being able to do them at the same time in a different studio, we pre-recorded interviews. And then the wrestler you were wrestling, you got to see his comments and you made your comments. So Eddie Mansfield watched the pros' comments that were pre-recorded. And then he made a pretty darn good interview. I was really surprised. I was, I was proud of him. The second segment of the show opened up with Ernie Ladd, who had stayed over for TV. You know, and uh, wow, what a great guy. I asked him, I said, Ernie, you you, you find out, yeah, I'm going to fly out, but not till late tomorrow afternoon. And I said, uh, can, would you work TV for me? You know, what a great guy. He says, heck yeah, Ron, I'll do whatever, I, whatever you want, you know. So he was flying out to, to wrestle in Houston, Texas uh, on Saturday night. So he had really taken a, a liking to Charlie Cook and the first time he'd ever worked with him. Uh, the week before where Charlie won. So I pushed my luck a little bit, finding out that he liked Charlie. And, uh, you know, and I, I said, I got an idea. Would you do this for me? And, uh, wow, he liked my idea. And she's, uh, we're going to really push Charlie Cook. So, so a lad dressed to wrestle and he went out in the show and he watched the video where he lost to Charlie Cook from the night before. And uh, he was such a great talent, man, and he was so cool on interviews. Uh, he turned that loss into a humiliation to Charlie Cook. <laughs> he just bragged about me how he humiliated this guy. And, and he's a very inferior wrestler, he called him. And, uh, <laughs> and then about the time he said that in the video, Charlie Cook caught him in a small package, man, and he got the three count. So... <laughs> So, you know, and Ernie covered that up too, man. He says, you know what? He says, uh, Charlie Platt, he says, if I wrestled that guy a thousand times, that would never happen again. <laughs> so then he told Charlie Platt, he said, you know, uh, 
the reason I'm dressed here to wrestle, he says, whenever I lose a match, he says, which is very rare, I hardly ever lose. He says, I like to get right back in the ring, like getting on a horse after he bucks you <laughs> up. I want to get back in the ring quick, and I want to beat somebody up. You know, and he said, that'll make me feel better about losing to somebody as bad a wrestler as Charlie Cookie. Right. <laughs> so he went to the ring with his opponent already in the ring. And uh, lo and behold, Charlie Cook comes busting out of the dressing room and he goes to the ring. He's heard the interview. He's seen the deal, you know, and uh, and he got a huge pop from the crowd because, man, just the night before he had beat, beat the, one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. And uh, he got a big pop and uh, and he walked straight over to Lad's opponent and wow. uh, they had a little private conversation. And uh, the wrestler, I guess, you know, like what he heard, because he wasn't particularly happy he was going to have to wrestle Ernie Ladd anyway, and he just <laughs> left the ring. Yeah, let's right? make a, let's make a deal. <laughs> Charlie Cook says, I, "I want this match. Get your ass out of here." Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, and uh, and he he was gladly left. I think he had a smile on his face when he left. You know, and then and then Ladd stood there and he watched what was going on. And then when he saw the guy leave, he went right straight over to Charlie Cook and he got in his face. And you, you couldn't tell what he was saying, but mm -hmm. you could tell he was giving him hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and Charlie just stood there and he took it, you know, and wow, the studio got the buzzing, man. You know, they're face to face and the studio is like, geez, well, what's what's this going to turn out to be? <laughs> so Lad basically, I think, said, OK, you want to do it again? We'll do it again. And uh, when Lad turned around and he started back to the corner, the timekeeper rang the bell. Charlie Cook was looking at Lad's back and he just ran across the ring and he shoved Bernie Lad face first into the turnbuckle. Oh. O'Connor rolled him and uh, covered him in one, two, three. Are you kidding? <laughs> and the studio exploded. I mean, it beat, Charlie Cook had beat, <laughs> it, it was amazing, man. <laughs> Whoa. All right, wait a second. Charlie Cook beat. The legendary Ernie Ladd twice in 24 hours? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking, man. Man. You know, we had an instant superstar on our hands, man. I thought that studio was going to get Cook up on their shoulders and carrying him back to Dothan. Wow. It's wow. like they were all fired up. Uh, the rest of the show was like riding a rocket ship. I mean, I came out next for the personality profile. I was booed so loud they could hear it in Montgomery. I mean, you know, that <laughs> studio was lit up. And so I watched the $10,000 winner-take-all match with Armstrong uh, from the night before. And, uh, and obviously it ended up with almost everybody in both dressing rooms out there trying to separate me and Armstrong. And uh, Charlie Platt and I uh, set up the match for the next week, man, a first-ever Southeastern Gulf Coast Lumberjack match. It was going to be wrestlers around the ring, going to keep Armstrong and I inside the ring until a winner was decided. There was going to be no time limit, no disqualification, and there had to be a winner. Somebody's going to walk away with the $10,000 next Friday night. So then the assassins come to the ring. They're managed by Rip Tyler. And, uh, well, they hit the ring running. These guys were so on fire, young guys and really starting to get over. And, uh, the you know, another big win, man. They got them a great big win, and uh, then they led – that went right into the interview uh, about their tag match the following Friday night. Big Bill Dromo 
from the Georgia Territory had stayed over for me just to do the interview. And Charlie Cook joined him, man, after just beating <laughs> Ernie Ladd the second time. And uh, and they're against the undefeated assassins <laughs> the next Friday night. And then the TV closed with the man, Bob Armstrong. He tore the house down. <laughs> it was the sixth time, man. Only the sixth show since we'd opened the territory. And that was about all the time it was necessary for a wrestler like Bob Armstrong to get over. Fans just loved Bob Armstrong wherever he went. And uh, it wasn't any different there in lower Alabama, man. They were they were big, big Armstrong fans already. So we closed the TV, man, with a recorded interview. I did the recorded interview and I had surrounded myself by all the hills. And we were bragging, I was bragging about splitting the $10,000 with them. If they worked Bob Armstrong over every time I send him out on the floor to you, man. And, uh, and if you help me, we're going to all split the money. You know, and uh, so then, boom, they threw it back to the studio, and there was Bob Armstrong, and he was surrounded by the baby faces. The studio crowd was still rocking since that early lad moment, man. They were on fire. And in spite of what had happened on Monday in Montgomery, I felt real good about what happened on this TV, and, and I felt good about the future of Southeastern Gulf Coast. Wow. Sounds like kind of an up and down week, stud. So what happened six days later in the Dothan matches? Well, Mike Stallings beat Eddie Sullivan. Uh, David Schultz beat Robert Gibson. Eddie Mansfield, with a little help from David Schultz, beat the wrestling pro. Well, quite a bit of help from David Schultz. But since I was a heel at the time, I'll just say it was a little bit of help from David Schultz. Uh, the Assassins managed by Rip Tyler defeated Bill Dromo. They beat Dromo in the match. Charlie Cook, though, looked like a dynamite. Wow. He stole the show, man. Uh, he was on his way to being a star. Charlie Cook and his wins over Ernie Ladd made a different wrestler out of him. Uh, I won the 10000 in the in the Lumberjack match with Armstrong, just like I predicted in the last TV interview six days earlier. With my mob of heels out there on the floor, I just kept tossing him out and tossing him out, and they beat him up and beat him up, and then they throw him back in. And uh, after a while, it got to where the referee didn't focus on me when I was standing there. He was more focused on what the heels were doing to Bob Armstrong while he's out there on the ground. And uh, that just gave me a little advantage there, and I pulled a little something out of my trunks, and I nailed old Mr. Goody Two-Shoes with it, and I won the match. <laughs> In the 10 grand. Okay. All right. All right. So what was the attendance? <laughs> well, yeah, before I answer that, I got to draw some attention to the results of that card that we just talked about. Uh, if, 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 you, if you paid attention, uh, Hills won four out of the five matches. And, and as I've been saying all along here since we got down there, uh, heat on the heels was the way we were going to find success in southeastern Gulf Coast. And by golly, we were socking it to them, man. We were, we were making people angry. <laughs> so, we, so we went up the attendance. We went up on the attendance, uh, 100 fans. Not a gigantic jump. But uh, not a huge spurt, but but it wasn't a Montgomery disaster either. You know, I mean, uh, heads were up. The attitude was good with all the guys. We had new cities opening up, and uh, it was full steam ahead. Well, that's interesting that that even 100 additional seats being filled was still encouraging 
and moves the needle in your mind's eye. That's that's cool. All right. So speaking of new cities, didn't you run the next night in a small city close to Dothan? Is uh, a country town, New Brockton. New Brockton. Yeah. A little bit of country town. You're right about it. A right. little tiny town, man. And and after what had happened uh, the first night of the week in Montgomery. Uh, Bob and I realized that the Dothan part of the territory was probably the place we need to focus. And it seemed to be that's where fans were still there. And uh, so we picked this, uh, this small city because of its proximity to Dothan. That's what, 30 miles, something like that outside Dothan. It's yeah. right there close. Yeah, probably, right? yeah, yeah. You know, and it's building, Dave, I don't know if you're ever in this building. It's an exact replica, replica of the Dothan building. Uh, yeah, the exactly farm center. The same yeah. building. Yeah, okay. It's small. <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, you know, and that was our first Saturday night town that we ran in southeastern Gulf Coast history was New Brockton, and uh, we ran it on that Saturday night. All right, so how'd you do in New Brockton? Well, we did a lot better than we did in Montgomery. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, I guess we probably had about six hundred fans, but it was enough to run the show. But dang, you know? that's that's not bad. Six hundred, yeah, six hundred shows, six hundred yeah. fans. You know, I mean, yeah. that area over there around Dothan was really strong. Yeah, man, I, we could never really figure it out, but it always was. And as long as we were there, it was. And it became bigger and bigger, as you're aware, man. It just yeah. it, it becomes a monster. And know? I remember during the on the TV shows in Dothan, they would say, and uh, on the certain night in New Brockton. So New Brockton got mentioned on the TV show, like every time there was a TV show. So you knew there was going to be wrestling on that particular night. so that And we went back yeah. there pretty regularly because yeah. we needed a good Saturday night town. And this 600 fans, Dave, yeah. is going to become over 1,000. Wow. In that wow. little town before it's over, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it was a small crowd, but it was an enthusiastic one. They knew the wrestlers. They were into the matches. They were, they were into the heels and they were, they were booing the heels and cheering the baby faces. It gave all of the wrestlers, man, a lot of hope for the future. They watched this town and I pumped it. I said, guys, this is what it's going to be like in all of them, you know? So, uh, <laughs> Before we finish today, you know, I'm going to change gears a little bit on the studcast here, and especially when it comes to southeastern Gulf Coast. Now, our largest population area in that territory was obviously the biggest city was Mobile, Alabama, and uh, and the biggest TV market because Mobile not only covered Mobile, it covered another big city in Florida, the Pensacola. So we didn't run a show there yet, but we'd been on TV there for about eight weeks at this point. And it was kind of early to be trying to draw a crowd, you know, but I was a little desperate. I mean, Montgomery failed for us miserably, you know, uh, and we all we had going was Dothan, and now we had a little new Brockton. But uh, I, I kind of said, dude, we got to go there. We've got to go there, Bob. We talked about it. And uh, so we didn't go to Mobile. Uh, we picked Pensacola. And uh, it was kind of like uh, it was time to do or die, man. Uh, you know, we, we were going to go under if we didn't have our crew down there and more towns to work in. So we looked west, man, and um, toward Mobile and Pensacola, and we decided let's run Pensacola for the mm. first time ever. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start running some more towns there, and there's going to be a lot more to talk about there. Wow. That's cool. That's how you start watching this thing spread out. All right. It is time for our learning tree question. We made it, stud. So let's get ready for that. This one, Ron, is very appropriate for this episode. A gentleman 
named Mark Frazier ask regarding Ernie Ladd's appearance in Southeastern Gulf Coast. Did you try to convince Ernie to stay full time in your territory? <laughs> well, I, I, and I hate to laugh, you know, but uh, wow, <laughs> it's a great question, Mark. I mean, you know, uh, having a having a talent like Ernie Ladd in 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 my territory, man, in even Knoxville, I would have been. It was an honor. It was an honor to to deal with Ernie Ladd, and uh, wow, what a guy he was, man, to do what he did for Charlie Cook uh, was just unbelievable. And uh, and I'd never met Ernie Ladd until this, till he showed up in Dalton for this the show two, two weeks earlier. And and of course, I would love to have him as a top heel, you know, uh, but uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast, it wasn't anywhere near ready to support a star like Ernie Ladd, man. Uh, we, you know, hell, we just given the money back on our first show in Montgomery, and so you know, we we we're, we couldn't afford an Ernie Lad. It, it would become a major market, uh, Montgomery, in the future. Hmm. But uh, the the key word for Southeastern at this point was future. Uh, hmm. Everything hmm. always just pointed to the future. I mean, we we had a long way to go. So Ernie Lad was a top star. He could go anywhere he wanted to in the world. You know, he, <laughs> he was probably making as much as any wrestler in the world at that time. I don't doubt it because he wasn't working one territory. He was working the big cities. And uh, to prove that, in this episode, he was going to leave Dalton, Alabama after this TV with Charlie Cook, letting Charlie Cook beat him. And he was going to fly into Houston, Texas, to work one of the biggest wrestling cities in the world for one of the all-time best NWA promoters ever, the great Paul Bosch. Hmm. I'll guarantee you he's going to wrestle in front of 10,000 plus wow. on that wow. Saturday night. He, and he could work anywhere in the world. So, uh, so uh, you know, Mr. Frazier, you know, Southeastern Gulf Coast at this time, in my opinion, <laughs> it, it, we had the perfect crew for a territory that had been dead for some time. We had a bunch of young and hungry guys talented guys, man, with great futures ahead of them. And they were all willing to work hard for small money, uh, just for the opportunity to prove themselves uh, and to become great workers. And they were going to make big money later. They, all of, uh, I'm a, David Schultz, future Hall of Famer, Assassin Randy Colley, future <laughs> stars, one of the Moondogs, Robert Gibson, Rock and roll, Hall of Famer, man. These guys were young and hungry, man, and they were willing to sacrifice for the success of a territory. So, Mr. Frazier, I appreciate your question, man. It, and it was a very valid question. Uh, and I found out that when trying to build a territory so dead that you had to refund the money to fans because you didn't have enough of them in the building to even have the event, you literally had to walk before you ran. So in 1978, Southeastern Gulf Coast, in the beginning, we were barely able to walk. <laughs> With young talent, though, uh, that were scratchers and diggers, uh, but we were going to eventually, man, turn that sucker around, and we'd be able to run with the big dogs like Ernie Ladd. Wow. Holy cow. You know, the big cat, you called him the big dog, the big cat, he died in, in 07. And, and I want to see if you'll give me just a minute was this what was what he did for Charlie Cook just the kind of man that he was how well did you come to know him 
Oh, yeah. I worked with him. Uh, as time went on, uh, he came and worked. Uh, me and him worked in Mobile and uh, the the uh, the little expo hall and mm -hmm. put mm -hmm. more bleachers in there. We drew the biggest crowd ever in that little expo hall. We put 7,000 people in the building for 4,000, me against Ernie Ladd. Wow. But right. it was probably three years later. And how tall was he? Was he 6'9"? Same height. You we both, looked eye to eye. Oh, God, that was the Twin Towers taking each other on. Oh, yeah, but, man. And what a great interview he did for me. Uh, he sent that interview in to me, and I had bad knee wow. because I'd suffered that Bob Armstrong incident with Ric Flair. And he sent in an interview about walking on the cane. <laughs> he's going to walk in on yeah. the cane and <laughs> out on the cane. Hey, so, you know, but, I mean, but what he did for, for Charlie Cook – that was, uh, I mean, he, he, he took the pen f twice. Yeah. It, it said everything about what he was as a wrestler. He's the yeah. exact model of what you wanted as a wrestler. He had no ego. Yeah. He wanted yeah. to help. Yeah. He wanted yeah. to get your people over. He wanted to make money and yeah. he wanted to give guys breaks. Wow. And wow. Holy he cow. did. He gave yeah. Charlie Cook the greatest break I think I ever saw a heel do for another heel. Well, I got to tell you, that's that's one of the reasons I really love this stud cast is hearing that part of the story. So as we I, I like uh, all of these stud casts, just the, the memories that are brought back success in one territory. Another one is barely hanging on. It just makes the ride a real eye opener and a ton of fun. And thanks for that footnote about uh, the big cat. Uh, that that's that's really good stuff. All right, listen, folks on Facebook to become friends with Ron. Please go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend on Twitter. Follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. The website, visit the stud on his tremendous website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com. You'll find great videos, a photo gallery, every stud cast ever done. 43 super stud cast are there as well. And his stud store, all kinds of souvenirs, classic continental five pack of videos and his thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Let's mention that where much of what the stud is famous for is displayed. Continental and USA TV shows are there. Stud stories, Gulf Coast and Southeastern classic matches, and so much more. And the place you find everything that Ron has ever done is his amazing streaming channel. It's out there now. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Dot com. You got to check it out. It's all there now and always will be. New superstars of the past series, three hour stars of the sports series, Wildcat Wendell Cooley documentary, and coming next week, the world premiere of Tony Anthony's Dirty White Boy documentary with the original classic Southeastern TV shows coming soon. Subscribe at Classic Continental Wrestling. Now, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. Subscribe now. It's going to be the best old school streaming site on the planet ever. Right now, get the special free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. 
Com. Man, that's a ton of stuff to be involved in. So where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, Southeastern Knoxville, man, it's been on fire for a long time. But what happened in this episode and what we're going to talk about in this in the uh, in next week is uh, it's it, we're, it's like it's going to be like throwing gas on the fire, man. Uh, Garvin's going to begin his journey to becoming the biggest baby face in the territory's history. The great Malenko has stepped into a spot that's going to take him to Garvin's spot as a heel, top guy. Uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast, we're finally focusing on its largest population. Pensacola is going to have its first event. Mobile is going to open soon. And this territory alone, by itself, it'll make a spellbinding tale for every studcast, just talking about what's going to happen in Southeastern Gulf Coast. It's going to keep fans wondering about what's next. And, uh, and then we have another interesting learning tree question that comes from a fan watching the Obviously, this one comes from somebody that's watching the great continental TV shows on YouTube, Southeastern Wee channel, and also on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. And his question is something about the feud between exotic Adrian Street, Norvell Austin, and the women that were in their matches and their lives. So thanks, as always, man, to everybody out there listening to us today. And please tell your friends about us. Take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers, saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.